morning. It should be on the screen behind me or on the monitors around the room. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's continue singing together. There was a a time in my life, several years ago, when I was really into guitars. I was on an ongoing quest to acquire the best guitars that I could find. And I remember one time in particular, I went to a local shop and I found the perfect guitar. The craft was remarkable and unique. The sound was was incredible and robust. It was unlike any other guitar that I had ever seen or heard. So I took it down off the display, and the workers let me play it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking down at it, and it was really cool. But then the nerd in me, the inner nerd, rose up in revolt of this cool moment. I was looking down at the guitar when literally out of nowhere, I got this terrible nosebleed. Probably the worst one I have ever had in my life. And it got everywhere. And it got all over this exquisite guitar. So I sheepishly walked up to the workers and I showed them. And they were nice about it. They didn't make me pay for it. My ego paid for it. But as bad as I felt, it could have been much, much worse. My situation doesn't even compare with other examples. A few years ago, there was a man in a museum in England who tripped over his shoelace and smashed not one, not two, but three King Dynasty Chinese vases. Or, if anyone here just happens to be an Alabama football fan, like our senior pastor... You might remember that fateful day back in 2012. In 2012, Bama won the national championship and they got the famous BCS trophy, which is this big football made entirely out of a rare crystal that is mined in a small town in Ireland. Well, to celebrate their victory, they put it on display when one of, when a parent of one of the players tripped over the rug knocked over the trophy and it smashed 
to smithereens. I think they probably said roll tide. You know, I don't really feel bad for Alabama. They got plenty of those trophies. Who I really feel bad for is that parent. Can you imagine? But just like mine doesn't compare to these, these don't even compare with what we will witness in our passage today. Today we will see not the accidental, but the willful shattering of something unthinkably valuable. That's what happens in Genesis 3. Throughout history, this passage has been referred to as the fall, where sin enters the picture and everything is ripped and broken apart. That's why one theologian calls it not the fall, but the rupture. You know, the King Dynasty vases and the BCF trophies are stories of something that happened to someone else. Listening to them is like being on the outside looking in. But as Scripture, Genesis 3 is more than that. It's not just something that happened to someone else. Like, man, poor Adam and Eve, they really blew it. We need to know before we walk through this passage that we are not just on the outside looking in. Their story is our story. Whereas another way of putting it, it's more than information. It's instruction. It teaches us. So this morning we will learn two main lessons this passage teaches us. Two main lessons that are core to our spiritual lives, yet we often take for granted. But the moment we lose sight of them, everything is thrown off. The details of these two main lessons are found as we walk through this passage. So please turn with me, if you're not already there, to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. To get our bearings real quick, we need to know where we've been thus far. In chapter 1, we saw that God made everything, and everything God made was good. And humanity was the culmination of it all, made in His image, His representatives on earth ruling under Him. In chapter 2, we saw the man and the woman placed in the Garden of Eden, given a perfect rhythm of work and rest, sharing a perfect bond as one. It's a beautiful picture. Yet they were enjoying more than just the goodness of creation. God made the garden as a place where He would dwell in perfect fellowship with man and woman. That's what it's about. And that's the picture we're left with as chapter 2 closes. Perfect harmony with one another and with God. Our passage picks up with this picture still fresh in our mind. The account unfolds in three stages. The act the aftermath, and the answer. The first stage is found in verses 1 through 6. We read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the, of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, 
she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Suddenly, another presence is felt in the harmonious garden. A serpent slithers into the picture. But this was no ordinary serpent. Something else is at work here. An evil power is looming behind it all. But at first, we're not sure of his motives. He doesn't show his true colors right off the bat. Ever so subtly, he asks, Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Wait. Any tree? You can't eat of any tree? That's not what God had said. God had said you may freely eat of every tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, the serpent is making it seem like God is holding out on them. Like he's insinuating that God is depriving them. The woman corrects him. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. We can't completely dissect this statement for the sake of time, but notice in general that some things that God originally said get subtracted and some things are added. We don't know if this is Adam's doing and passing on God's words or if it's hers, but either way, the sense of uncertainty is unsettling. And as soon as the woman utters the word die, the serpent replies with a flat-out lie. You will not surely die. Oh, you definitely won't die. It was a straight denial of God's word. And notice that he did not begin so brazen. He didn't show up and start with something so obviously wrong. The ground he began with was small simply a suggestion to entertain and then it became bigger and bigger it's like he starts with just a small crack in the door church we need to know that this is often the case in our lives as well when temptation comes our way it often doesn't begin with something so clearly out of the question we may not be presented with a big step but often a small step in the wrong direction and then another and then another, and then another. I'm convinced that most Christians, when they have fallen, didn't wake up one day planning on it. It was a series of decisions made over time. We need to be aware of how quickly small decisions to compromise become big ones. In the garden, the serpent is now more bold than ever. With his final words, he holds nothing back. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent is accusing God. In essence, he's saying, your life could be so much better. But God doesn't want that for you. He's not looking out for your best interest. He's, he's holding you back. Looking back at these verses, I want to highlight one primary thing the serpent is denying about God. And I think we need to know this because Scripture later tells us that this serpent was the very embodiment of Satan himself. And he is still the enemy of God's people. And he is still telling the same lie to us. What the serpent denied is God's goodness. Over and over, Satan is making it seem like God is somehow cheating them, holding out on them, like there's so much good outside of God's will that he doesn't want them to have. 
He just wants to confine them. When this same lie lodges in our own hearts, we open ourselves to sin. We tell ourselves that God is holding out on us so we would be happier, better, more complete, satisfied if we just step out of His will. We tell ourselves that God does not make guardrails to love us, but to limit us. We tell ourselves that we have to take matters into our own hands because He does not or will not provide. There's so much we could say here. But I just want to say one thing. One way we fight against this lie. And it seems so simple, but it's so necessary. One way we fight against this lie is by cultivating a life of thankfulness. Deliberate, tenacious thankfulness. Because when we regularly and deliberately thank God, we are brought back to the reality. We are reminded of the reality of how truly good He is to us. And this lie becomes smaller and smaller. In verse 6, our attention turns back to the woman and the man beside her. The act of sin appeals to the woman at every level. It promises so much. It looks so good on the outside. Tragically, we watch as she takes and eats the fruit, gives it to her husband who was silently present the whole time, and he eats along with her. Notice how this verse is packed with action words. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. It's like the whole thing is spiraling out of control and you just want to say, no! But it's too late. The tragic deed is done. The part of you may ask, What's the big deal? What's so wrong with eating a piece of fruit? First of all, it probably wasn't an apple. If you ask me, it was probably a coconut, because that is clearly the most cursed fruit. But in all seriousness, I actually think it is to our disfavor that throughout history we have focused so much on the fruit itself as if that was the evil thing. When the emphasis of this passage is on the act itself, it was the action that was sinful. How so? What does the tree of knowledge of good and evil mean? I've seen it referred to as the tree of decision. The tree of decision. And I think that accurately gets to the point. This is about a decision. It's about a decision about who gets to call the shots. Eating of the tree was a declaration to God. You are not the authority of my life. I am not dependent on you to decide what is good or what is not. We want to be the king and the queen of this place. It was a decision. That's why this sin is so serious. It's not about a fruit. It's about an uprising an attempt to dethrone God. And here is where we must realize that is ultimately what all sin is. There is a throne in each of our hearts. Our sin says to God, the rightful ruler, you are not on that throne. I am. And if that sounds liberating to you, we need only to look to what happens next in the garden. The first stage of our passage was the act. The second stage is found in verses 7 through 13. 
we read. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. This stage describes the aftermath. And it really is sad. The serpent had told them a half-truth. That's usually what Satan does. Yes, their eyes were opened, but not in the way he promised. Now they knew that they were naked. And being naked is associated with being exposed. And that's how they felt. They realized that they were no longer innocent. Can you imagine that overwhelming sense of shame coming over them for the first time? They had never felt anything like this before. It's not that they were embarrassed. It's that they felt guilty and completely out in the open. Like someone was shining a spotlight on them. Their hearts race as they feel panic. Again, something they had never felt before. And there's this sudden impulse to hide. So we watch as they scramble, frantically trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, trying to cover their guilt themselves. And just then their eyes widen as they hear what was probably a familiar sound. It used to fill them with joy. It was the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The cool of the day means the time when the sun was going down in the evening and and the breeze comes in. So with this, we get a window into life in the garden up to this point. Adam and Eve walking with the Lord in the early evening with the sun lowering in the sky. It's a stunning picture of intimate friendship. I think of walking around with Lisa or close friends on a perfect summer night after dinner with the breeze coming in. Imagine, imagine experiencing that with the Lord. But this time, it's different. This time we see Adam and Eve running and hiding from the presence of the Lord. That word literally is face. They hid from the face of the Lord. But God, but God, but God, like a shepherd gathering lost sheep, seeks them out. He knows exactly where they are. But as an invitation to come forward, he calls out, Where are you? The man answers, I heard you in the garden because I was naked. I was afraid, so I hid. The joy of God's presence has been replaced with fear. God asks, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? The one I told you not to. God knew exactly what they did. But again, it's an invitation to come clean. But how does the man respond? Verse 12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, I imagine him pointing his finger. In the original language, the word she is emphasized. She gave me the fruit. And I ate. 
He blames the woman. And you know, there's a lot of jokes we could make here. But I just want to say that this is so, so sad. The man is at odds with the woman, and the woman is at odds with God. The man is at odds with the woman and at odds with God, and we watch as their relationship splinters. There's one three-letter word in his response that we can't miss. Why, oh, you, whom you gave to be with me. Ultimately, the man is pointing his finger at God. In essence, he's saying, if you hadn't put me under these circumstances, this would have never happened in the first place. This is really all you're doing. He is blaming God, a pattern that would be repeated down through the ages and be replayed in our lives. And the relationship splinters all the more. Then the Lord turns to the woman. Again, he invites her to respond. What is this you have done? We hear her reply. The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's as if she's saying, the devil made me do it. Listen, the devil may tempt us, but our sin is our responsibility. We look back at both of their responses and all we see is biting and blame shifting. They're scrambling. First they try to cover their guilt with leaves and now they're trying to cover it with excuses. It's the woman. It's God. It's the devil. It's anyone but me. And before we shake our heads, we have to ask ourselves, how often do I not own up to my sin before God? How often is this replayed in my life? How often do I try to, do I try to avoid responsibility and explain it away? Well, I wouldn't have said that or done that if. We're left with a picture of everything in the garden ripping apart as a result of sin. It's like hitting a mirror and every piece of it is fractured from the top to the bottom. The perfect, harmonious relationships have been drastically ruptured. On a horizontal level, the man and the woman are alienated from one another, but even more importantly, on a vertical level, they are alienated from God. At this point, looking back on these stages, we see the first main lesson this passage teaches us. We learn that sin is serious. When you witness this account, isn't that what comes out so clearly? Look at this mess. Sin is not just a little no-no with no real impact. Essentially, it's trying to take the crown off of God's head and put it on our own. It's a way of saying, I'm better off without you. It ends up driving a wedge in our relationship with God and one another. So this passage calls us to examine ourselves. Have we explained away, minimized, become callous or casual with some sin in our lives? Listen, as Christians, we will always be fighting. We will always be fighting with sin. But by God's strength, this passage encourages us to keep fighting. Are we fighting? It's a much needed reminder that sin is serious. So far we have seen the act and the aftermath. 
The third stage is found in verses 14 through 24. It's the remainder of the passage. We're going to read the whole thing. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God called, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This stage describes the answer, God's answer to sin. He begins with the serpent, the embodiment of Satan. For his role in all this, God declares that the serpent is cursed. His slithering on the ground will now be a continual reminder that he will eat dust. It's an ancient Hebrew expression of defeat, just like we say, eat my dust. God is declaring the intimate defeat of the enemy. And in verse 15, he promises it. God says to Satan, an offspring of the woman is coming who will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. In the Hebrew, it's the same word, bruise and bruise. But a strike to the heel is not the same as a crushing strike to the head. In essence, God is saying to Satan, Yes, you will wound this offspring, but even as you do, he will crush you with the fatal blow. Satan had led the man and and woman into sin and death. And they chose to follow. It was their responsibility. But no sooner did it happen than we hear God utter a promise. One is coming who will reverse all this. And I'm struck by the fact that this side of the cross, we know the depths of this promise. God made it knowing full well it would cost him dearly. He sent his son, who was born of a woman, the promised offspring, At the cross, Jesus was wounded by the evil one. But on the third day, he struck the final blow. He rose victorious to defeat the power of sin and death. God begins his answer to sin with a promise. Next, he turns to the woman and the man. First of all, notice that he does not pronounce curses over them. Only the serpent and the ground are cursed. But he does pronounce their consequences. 
He follows through on His Word. He always does. Their consequences are all related to the good things God had given them in chapters 1 and 2. Due to the presence of sin, God declares that these things will no longer be the same. Because they brought sin into the picture, what used to be purely life-giving to them will now be marred by struggle. To the woman, God says that this will be true of the good gifts of childbearing and the marriage relationship. And I want to unpack this for a moment because it can be taken the wrong way. It can wrongly be taken as a command. God, like God is commanding that there be struggle in these areas of life. And because of that, there have been times in history when women were prevented from taking medicine to relieve pain in childbirth. And that grieves me. One doctor during this time period, who was also a theologian, helped develop one of the first forms of modern pain relief. And when he was criticized for going against this verse for administering it to women in labor, he responded by, by telling his critics to read the whole passage. He pointed out that if that's the case, then men are also guilty every time they try to ease their struggle with the ground by using inventions like the plow or fertilizer. <laughs> and that's true. If God is commanding this, then the toil of work should not be alleviated in any way. Pastor Ralph and I got to get rid of our ergonomic desk chairs. I think it's clear that God is not commanding that this is the way things should be. The way things should be is found in chapters 1 and 2. Instead, God is declaring the symptoms of life in a fallen world. And the same applies for what God says of the marriage relationship. What does it mean that your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you? Well, it's not as clear here, but... This exact same expression is used in chapter 4, and there it essentially means a power struggle. So I think the best way to understand what God says of the marriage relationship is that as a symptom of life in a fallen world, there will be a power struggle. There will be a tug of war for power. But this is not how things should be. Our actions can either reinforce or relieve the symptoms of the fall. So how do we relieve the tug of war? As followers of Christ, we see that it is through self-emptying. Husband, Scripture does refer to us as head or lead, but as soon as we hear that word, we have to immediately empty our minds of all secular definitions of leading in our world today. Jesus says you lead precisely by emptying yourself, by serving. We start by placing ourselves under our wives, lifting them up to flourish in who they're called to be. And then wives submit themselves by placing themselves under their husbands, lifting them up to flourish in who they're called to be. Do you see what happens as the husband places himself under his wife and then the wife places herself under her husband and then the husband and then the wife and then the husband and then the wife. It's a spiraling movement upwards. 
Marriage is a perpetual dance of self-emptying. And as we seek to grow in that, the tug of war rope falls to the ground. To the man, God says that the good gifts of work and food will also be marred by struggle. And then in verse 19, God ends by announcing the ultimate consequence of their actions. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sin brings death. It cuts us off from the source of life. But verse 20 was meant to be heard right after verse 19. There's no paragraph break in the original language. As soon as we hear of death, we hear of life. Adam turns to his wife and calls her Eve, the mother of all living. It's a declaration of God's gracious provision for life to continue. You see, the story of humanity could have ended at verse 19, but it doesn't. Even though there is death, it is not the final word. There is still life. Even in the midst of consequences, a bright light shines forth from God. And on top of that, in verse 21, God clothes the man and the woman with animal skins. His covering is far better than their self-made ones. It's always that way. And it requires the shedding of blood. God Himself covered their guilt and shame. And on top of that, the final verses speak of Adam and Eve being sent out of the garden. It's a sad scene. But even in the midst of this sad scene, there is grace. You see, if they ate of the tree of life, they would live forever, forever in their fallen, corrupted condition. And God doesn't want that. So when He removes them from the tree of life, it's an act of grace. So they don't stay stuck the way they are. It opens the door for future redemption. And what I want us to see is at every level for Adam and Eve, grace is infused in God's answer. It's like the line from Come Thou Fount that we sang this morning. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Not even when he was sinned against. Isn't that amazing? After all that God did for them, all we see of him in the first two chapters is doing good to them, providing for them, blessing them, taking care of all their needs. And how do they treat Him in return? By rejecting Him. By rising up against Him. How would I, how would we respond to that? Are you kidding me? But not God. Streams of mercy never ceasing. He seeks them out. He calls them out. He draws them out. He promises to reverse all this. He provides for life to continue. He covers them Himself. He guards them from living forever in their fallen condition apart from them. No wonder, God, no wonder Jesus describes the Father as running to the prodigal. That's the story from the very beginning. He's running to them. And this leads us to the second and final lesson that this passage teaches us. The first is that sin is serious. But the second is that God is more gracious. These lessons are core to our spiritual lives. We can never lose sight of them. And we need to see both of them. If we only see that sin is serious, then we become Pharisees and legalists, wearied by all our doing. But if we only see that God is gracious 
then, dis- then our discipleship is cheapened. And our witness is compromised because we look no different than the world around us. But this passage shows us both. Sin is serious, but God is more gracious. And both are nowhere more visible than at the cross. At the cross, we see how serious is our sin and the punishment it required. But at the cross, we see how gracious is our God and that He took the punishment. Jesus is God's ultimate answer. Even though He never sinned, at the cross, He endured the aftermath of the act. He endured shame to take our shame away. He endured separation from God to reconnect us to God. He endured death to bring us life, eternal life through faith in Him. Sin is serious, but God is more gracious. Sin is serious. Run from it, but God is more gracious. Run to Him. Actually, turn to run to Him and realize He's running to you. He's running to you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sin is incredibly ugly, but praise God for the sheer beauty of His grace. The words of this song serve as a fitting conclusion. Sin was strong, but Jesus is stronger. Our shame was great, but Jesus, you're greater. Sin was strong, but Jesus is stronger. Our shame was great, but Jesus, you're greater. Let's let's pray. Dear Lord, Thank you for teaching us through your word. 